On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about some numbers that say grade 11 and 12 students across this country are not confident in where they are as far as being ready for university. What does this mean? How has this happened? We're going to talk to Paul Bennett, the leading educational consultant and analyst about this. Uh, We're also talking about tax cuts for gasoline in this province. Apparently it's coming, but is it going to make much of a difference? And the very funny Sean Cullen, who will be in Burlington next Wednesday, joins us for a chat about, well, about all kinds of stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are right now, give or take, roughly a couple months away from the deadline for high school students to apply for university. Uh, I believe in Ontario, the deadline is January the 13th. That's the cutoff. But there is a new national survey that is creating some concern because according to this poll, according to the research they did, an overwhelming percentage of those in grades 11 and 12, 84% in fact, when I say overwhelming, I mean overwhelming, an overwhelming percentage say they don't feel ready to move on to post-secondary education. And a large part of that, according to this, stems from what they feel they've lost due to remote learning through COVID. They just feel like they have missed out, I guess, that they've fallen behind. They are not prepared at this point to take that step. That is a huge, huge, huge number. I want to bring in Paul Bennett. He is the guy behind Schoolhouse Institute, the director of that. He is the leading educational consultant and analyst in this country. He joins us now. Paul, thanks for doing this tonight. Very pleased to be with you, Scott. So when I see the number that says 84% feel they're not ready for university, before we dive into whether this is COVID-related, are students not always concerned and scared and doubting themselves about leaving high school and going to university and doubting that they're going to be ready? Is this really new? That's the right question to ask. And uh, yes, there's a certain level of anxiety that all high school students have in moving on to university. But this survey is different. They're saying it's not just anxiety. They're not just frightened. They're ill-prepared for university or college studies. And that's far different. Uh, Their confidence level has suffered, largely as a result of the pandemic. And um, our students were always fairly high on the confidence level. So while they were anxious, they were confident about their abilities. But what makes this survey even more uh, fascinating Scott, is who was involved. The more than 1,000 students polled by an organization called Grant Me, which um, really only deals with students who are highly academically motivated. They're high at the highest stream. Mm. Here's students that are attracted to Grant Me. They want to win scholarships to get into the top universities. They want to, uh, they want to get into the best schools. They want to uh, then land the best-paying jobs. Those are the things. On the website of GrantMe, it says, get into your dream school. So you're talking about a segment of the student population that, to begin with, is highly uh, motivated and highly successful academically, and they're the ones that are blowing the whistle and saying that remote learning uh, did not provide them with the support uh, they needed They're far behind what they should be in preparedness, and they suffered from isolation, and their work habits, their study habits, 
have suffered significantly. Now, those are, are serious concerns. Let's project this onto the overall student population going on to post-secondary education. And can you imagine what situation they're in if the top uh, performers, judging from this survey, have great concerns about their preparedness. Yeah. I mean, maybe the others who I would have been in the other category, maybe the others are just not aware how far behind they really are or how scared they should be. I mean, maybe the numbers wouldn't be as high if you factored everyone in. But I mean, the the ones you're talking about, the students you're talking about, uh, this poll is also saying that a great number of those who were polled are saying they're now actually aiming lower. They're not aiming for the university that they really hope to go to because they really don't think they're going to get it now. So they're going to shoot for a lower goal. That, 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 that seems kind of sad, if anything else, out of this whole thing. That I question because the data is starting to emerge that indicates that school boards um, and um, principals and um, teachers in the grades 11 and 12 have already adjusted their marks to accommodate this. Just take, for example, um, what happened in uh, March, from March to June 2020. Remember that Lecce uh, announced that no student would suffer as a result of the suspension of school for those three months. And remember, they were guaranteed the same set of marks, or no marks no less than what they were achieving in March. Well, the Toronto District School Board produced a study which indicated that not only didn't they lose anything, the grade 12s were up 4%, not writing exams, um, not really attending school. They got more than they might have been have if they'd been in school. So there is the uh, another um, example of the gap between the students' achievement levels, like in terms of marks and grades, and their actual um their actual marks and their competency mm-hmm. levels. Yeah. Um, when you say that principals are, ac- are, are accommodating marks or changing marks or whatever the, what it was you said, um, that really makes me nervous. I mean, uh, you would like to believe that if you earn an 80, you get an 80. And if you earn a 50, you get a 50, but it doesn't always work like that. It sounds like. Well, all marks have been mediated for the last two years. You suspend, well, for example, the number one, criteria that was a deterrent for having a higher mark was the final examinations. First of all, you eliminated them in June of 2020. And then um, while some of them were restored in uh, June 2021, they were reduced in value. Um, So (laughs) those that had exams, which were few and far between, were reduced in value. We also know that the data suggests that when you removed exams from graduating student requirements, their averages creep up. Uh, We know from studies in Alberta that as soon as they drop the final exams from 50% of your final mark to 30%, um, the percentage of students graduating from Alberta high schools to uh, what rose by 1% per year uh, every single year for an eight-year period. Um, Let me give you another piece of information. You know, before the pandemic, there were danger signs. Well, in April of 2019, a report was released by two well-respected sociologists, J. Paul Grayson of York University and James Cote of the University of Western Ontario. They released a study of um, undergraduate students in four universities, York, Western, Waterloo, and Toronto, and this was 41% of all undergraduates. 
they were surveyed by the sociologists to find out if they felt prepared for the work they were being um, asked to perform in university. Only 44% of those who were in those courses, first and second year, felt that they were prepared for the academic demands. The study concluded that students from high schools in Ontario were, uh, were failing at being prepared to address the academic challenges of university. They identified a number of skill deficiencies, which indicated that for, and this was significant because it was really just BA courses, BA, BA and BSc courses, uh, so they would be the average student. They were unprepared or ill-prepared, particularly for essay writing, for um, essentially doing anything more extensive than writing a paragraph, this kind of thing. So it was devastating news. And um, there are 16% of the students on their own reports said that they, uh, they lacked all of the skills required to do mm. higher learning. You know, it's so interesting you bring that up because we've had a guy, uh, a professor on this show a number of times from Western University. I think he's now retired, uh, Dr. Anton Alahar, who has been a critic of high schools for the very reason you just described, that he says, I go to teach a university-level course, and I have a lot of students who seem totally ill-prepared to handle it, and worse than that, totally ill-prepared to deal with the fallout when they suddenly realize that they are not operating at a level that they should be, because all the way up until now, if they don't do well, someone coddles them a little bit or pumps up their mark or helps them out or gives them a redo or whatever else. And his point has been, we're not preparing students very well. And so what you end up with then is what you talked about last segment about, you know, marks being bumped up or helped out or whatever. That's not really helping the students. That, that's almost setting them up for future failure. Dr. Anton Alahar is very well known, and he's also the co-author of Ivory Tower Blues and uh, The Underperformance of Higher Education, uh, two books he wrote with James Cote, who actually was a principal in conducting that survey released in April of 2019. So uh, most of the experts who've looked at university preparedness came to the same conclusions long before we were hit with a 20-month period of complete disruption in the school system. But as you know from my book, The State of the System, it's all documented in there. Keep in mind that Ontario students uh, 20 years ago, let's just say the early 2000s, 68% um, of students graduated from high school. Um, by the year 2016, it was 81%. Uh, and that, that's 81% in four years. Uh, to taking five years, it's 85.6% uh, that get it. Because we haven't really eliminated grade 13. Many students are still taking five years to raise their percentages. So the, the point is this, uh, uh, there's no evidence that their academic achievement levels have gone up anything to that degree. What we know is their academic achievement levels are at best stable uh, or in some cases declining. So um, the evidence of achievement and the evidence of attainment is at odds. Uh, you know I call that the big disconnect. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I look at this poll and I look at this survey, and again, everyone's going to have a different opinion. And as we started with, some people are just going to be naturally worried or naturally hard on themselves or whatever else. But your point about even the five years, like 
I don't believe that everybody has gotten smarter. I don't. And maybe I'm being unfair to students that are in high school. I just, I, I don't believe that suddenly everyone is more brilliant than the generation before. It just makes me wonder when you've got the kids who are now saying, I'm not ready, when you've got evidence that the remote learning has been impactful, when you've got university professors saying they're not ready, when we've gone through COVID, why not do something to say, you know, some of you are not ready yet. We're going to ask you to redo your year to catch up on all the lost time because this is for your benefit. It seems like that's something that nobody wants to do because it'll hurt you or your emotional, whatever. But it seems like a lot of kids could be, it would do them good to say, stick around for another year. Even if it's a sixth year of high school, you're not ready. I would suggest you invite Dr. Scott Davies from the University of Toronto on your show. He actually lives in Burlington. And he's produced something for the Royal Society of Canada, a report on what we need to know about preparedness of students. He's also made some very firm recommendations as to what we need to do to help students close the gap and become better prepared, not only uh, as graduates, but also as uh, potential students at universities and colleges. Uh, he's, I think you, you would find him very instructive because he he points out we do, haven't done the homework we don't know have the data but what we do have raises all kinds of alarm bells and signals there is one other thing and you've alluded to this i don't know if you tweeted it or wrote about it i can't remember i know your name i saw it attached to it somewhere but um there's also a paper that's out recently around september i think called lifting the curtain on eqao scores and it shows that double the number of students since 2005 have no have stopped taking the high school literacy test in Ontario. So now you not only have all the issues, but you've taken away another, me another measuring stick, another way to tell if kids are ready. So going back to where we started here, if I'm a student, now these are the high achieving students, I get it, but across the board, if I'm a student and I'm not even taking these tests and I've got teachers marking me up, how do I know if I'm ready? It would seem like I'd be going into this completely blind. I think that's what the students are saying in the survey. I think they're really the canaries in the coal mine. They're telling us that they're not prepared for university. You're not going to get that from the university admissions officers. They're in the business of filling seats. You're not going to get that from universities who, by and large, are in competition for more students. They're not in the business of turning them away, not these days. So I think, you know, you've got um, people in the positions of where you would expect them. They're the gatekeepers. They're really in conflict of interest. I've always felt that they it's in their interest to have higher graduation rates, to have, make it easier to get into university, and to show uh, that students are doing better. And that's kind of what's been going on since at least 2003 in Ontario. It is, uh, it, is a, it is troubling. If you have a kid who is that age or in high school or even coming to that age, uh, they may be feeling the same way. Or if you have a kid who's in university or a grandkid or whatever. I mean, it is, um, it's concerning. The, uh, again, the poll, you can go and look it up. It's by Grant Me, one word, capital G, capital M, G-R-A-N-T, capital M-E, Grant Me. Uh, look it up and you'll, uh, you can read more about this. Uh, in the meantime, Paul Bennett, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for your insights. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me back. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The province is going to lower taxes on our gasoline. So they say. 
Premier Doug Ford has said that he is going to be cutting. Uh, they had said they were going to cut gas taxes by 10 cents a liter. They did it earlier. My recollection, and my next guest can make sure that I'm right on this, my recollection is when they lowered this, the federal government put in some increases that essentially offset it. But now Doug Ford says he's going to drop the price, the taxes, the provincial taxes by another 4.3 cents a liter to try and make it a little more affordable. Uh, Jay Goldberg is the interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation who joins us now. Jay, thanks for doing this today. Great to be with you. Did, did I have that right? That we already had a cut in the provincial taxes, but it was offset by an increase in the federal taxes? So what Doug Ford promised to do in the last election was to get rid of cap and trade, which would lower the price of gas by 4.3 cents a litre. And then also to reduce the gas excise tax by 5.7 cents a liter. So they scrapped cap and trade right away. But you're right, the federal government imposed the carbon tax on us instead. So we really didn't see that decrease in price that we were looking for. Uh, Doug Ford says he's going to deliver on that 5.7 cents a liter before the next budget. So that means before the end of March. And of course, that'll be right in time for just before the next election. Mm, funny how that happens, even no matter who's in office. Uh, all right, so so every little bit helps, obviously. We'd all love to pay less for things. But are we really going to notice a difference? And the reason I ask that is because it seems that, just like what happened before, even if we cut something, there are going to be other increases and probably it ends up being a wash. Or are we going to notice this? So we will notice it right away because it'll be an immediate cut when Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservative government here in Ontario introduce it. Um, what's going to happen, though, is that the federal carbon tax is going to go up by 2.2 cents a litre every year until about 2030. So the 5.7 cents will get eaten away within three years um, by federal increases in the carbon tax. But I think what uh, Ford would say is that, you know, this is the provincial jurisdiction, that's the federal, the province is going to lower costs on taxpayers, and if the federal government wants to raise them, well, it's their prerogative. And so I think the conversation will shift after Premier Ford does cut the gas tax. It'll focus in on the carbon tax, because if the carbon tax was fully implemented today, what, what Justin Trudeau is planning to have by 2030 Gas prices today would be $1.91 a litre. So, um, you know, we've got a lot to look out for. That's going to be really expensive, but we will feel some immediate relief. It just might not be long-lasting. I'm not entirely sure, Jay, that everybody is aware. I wasn't. I had to break this down of how much taxes we really pay on gas. And what I've been able to find, and again, you can tell me if I've got this wrong anywhere, uh, in Ontario, $0.10 cents a litre goes to the federal excise tax. $0.8 cents per litre goes to the federal carbon tax right now, although you say it's going up. Uh, $0.14.7 cents per litre goes to the Ontario fuel tax. 13% also goes to HST. That, that's, that's now in the neighbourhood of $0.40 cents or $0.40 cents plus that is going to government with every litre of gas that you are purchasing that is, and climbing. That, I mean, we're paying a lot of tax already on gasoline. That's right. So here in Ontario, we did a report, the Canadian Tax Credit Federation did a report in the spring, 48 cents of every litre of gas when you're mm. filling up at the pumps. That is taxes. So even though today the price of gas is about $1.50, if we didn't have taxes in place, it would be about a dollar to a litre. So that shows you just how much uh, taxes are here in this country. And of course, as I said, and you mentioned, 
uh, they're just going to go up further still with the uh, with the carbon tax set to increase again and again and again until 2030. But what we have, and this is the problem with this, what we have in this country right now is, and in the province, but in the country, is conflicting priorities because everybody wants things to be more affordable and you've also got a large group of people saying, yes, but we have to get rid of fossil fuels and the one way we can do that is by raising the cost of them so much that people won't use them anymore. We're going to make it a deterrent. Uh, I don't know how those two sides ever find middle ground. You're either going to price things out of range or you're going to make it more affordable. I don't know what the middle ground is on that. Uh, I don't think there really is a very clear middle ground. What I would say is that carbon taxes haven't necessarily been proven to work. If you look at British Columbia, they've had a carbon tax for over 10 years and their emissions are still going up. And the problem with the federal carbon tax is that, yes, they're charging you more at the pumps. They're charging you more. Essentially, the price of everything goes up because the price of moving goods uh, is increasing with this carbon tax. But keep in mind, when you when you get your income tax statement back at the end of the year, the federal government then hands back, um, you know, hundreds of dollars in refunds. So you have to question, really, the wisdom of how much is this actually doing for the environment if at the end of the day, the federal government is giving a lot of this money back to us. Now, it's not all of the money, but they are giving a significant amount. And so if you really want to discourage behavior, you would not uh, be doing this refund. But of course, it's not possible to sell politically without having this refund. So the carbon tax really hurts the, the poor and the middle class the most because they can't afford to wait until election, uh, excuse me, they can't afford to wait until tax time in April to get all this money back. You know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. We've got half of Ontarians who say that they're $200 away from not being able to pay their bills. So this is a very serious pocketbook issue. And I think that there have we have to look elsewhere in terms of solutions for climate change because carbon taxes have not been proven to lower emissions. And I think it's really a tax plan and not necessarily an environmental plan. It's It's more something to make it look like we're doing something on climate change while our emissions are still going up regardless. Well, uh, look, there's no question that, uh, as you just alluded to, that if gas prices go up, anything that has to be transported, any goods that have to be transported, whether it's groceries or products you buy at the store or whatever else, they're all going to cost more because companies have to pay more for the gas to get them there. That, that, that There's not even a question about that. But I don't know when the point comes that even those who, in, in, with good intentions, I'm not, I'm not criticizing them, but with good intentions are absolutely, absolutely green and say, we have to get rid of this. I'm not sure when the point comes, or if it does, that the bottom line, that the effect on their paycheck, whether it's groceries or whatever else, hits them, that there's ever any pushback. I don't know if there will ever be pushback. I mean, that's an excellent point. I think what's going to happen is people who are living paycheck to paycheck, those who... Uh, are, you know, lower middle class, they're going to start feeling this the most because, of course, uh, when the price of goods goes up, that affects us all, but it, it affects us all equally. And so if you're making, for example, $120,000 a year, you're driving around an electric car, maybe it's not going to hit you as much. But if you're making $40,000 a year and you've got to drive your car to work and take your kids to school, um, you know, that's going to start hitting you, especially when you start talking about the price of gas going up, but also the price of goods going up. And so actually, I think the people who are going to notice it and perhaps turn against the carbon tax and this 
all these price hikes the most are going to be those at the lower income levels who simply can't afford to pay these higher bills on a daily basis. Yeah, but they have no power to change anything. And, and you can, um, you know, you, you can say that the province is going to lop a few cents off, like Doug Ford says he's going to. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how much difference that really makes. And, and, you know, depending if Doug Ford loses the next election and anything's possible, um, that could be right back on. I, I just I just don't see a whole lot of likelihood that this changes a lot of anything for everybody, even if we might like it to. Well, it may not change all that much, but a 5.7 cent per liter cut actually translates to, if you're filling up your minivan once a week, over the course of a year, that'll save you $200. So it is a meaningful saving, particularly for those who really need it. But as you say, with the federal carbon tax set to increase, that's going to be offset in the coming years. It is, uh, it is something, uh, you know, at least, uh, at least it's something that we can look forward to saving some kind of money because everything else seems to be going up. Uh, Jay Goldberg, always appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you. You know, uh, as I say, the conflict is, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being critical of those who feel very strongly about the environment and want to get rid of fossil fuels and all that. I mean, I, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with the absolute ending. I don't agree with cutting off the pipelines. I don't because we live in a cold climate and people have to be able to heat their house. And apparently fossil fuels aren't good and burning wood isn't good. And electric electricity, we know in this province costs a fortune. There's no right answer. Apparently the new environment minister, I read, doesn't like nuclear. I mean, so what are we gonna have solar panels in the winter and, and windmills that, 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 that there's gotta be a, there's got to be some kind of give here. There's got to be some kind of give, but I, I do wonder if even those who, with very good intentions, with a pure heart about this, argue that we have to get rid of fossil fuels to save the world, to save the environment, even those people, not criticize them, even those people, at a certain point, the costs that are going to rise from doing the things that they want to do, which governments in this country seem to be inclined to do, at some point, you wonder if somebody's going to say, well, hold on a second. Um, why am I now paying so much more for all this stuff? And the answer is going to be because we're doing the stuff that you say you want. And we're doing it really fast and we don't have solutions yet to fill the gap. Electric cars are fine, but we don't have reasonably priced electric cars right now for everybody. Electrical heating your house is fine, but it costs a fortune. It seems anyway, to me, like if we're going to start making these moves, at least have the technology or whatever else it is available and reasonably priced and accessible to everybody so they can make the choice then to go there. Because right now we're doing some stuff that's going to cost everybody a ton of money and it's not, there's no way out. You can't just turn off the heat in your house from December until April and say, see you in the spring. You'll be an ice cube. We saw what happened in Texas last year. In Texas, they had a deep freeze and people were dying in their homes because they didn't have proper heating. They, they had the, the, the heating situations that they had down there couldn't keep up. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My guest this hour was part of Corky and the Juice Pigs. What a great name for a band. Uh, He's been on Mad TV. He's been on the Royal Canadian Air Farce, The Tonight Show, just for laughs, who knows how many times. 
He's had his own self-named show. He starred in the Canadian cast of The Producers. He was the voice of Sergeant Sasha Spritz in the animated series Winston Steinberger and Sir Dudley Ding Dong, which I mention only because it's so much fun to say. Uh, there's a million other credits that he has as well. Um, I would prefer actually to speak to him rather than simply sitting here for the next 10 minutes and listing all of his credits, though I could do that um, another day. Next Wednesday, he's going to be at the Burlington Performing Arts Center to host the Sean Cullen Cocktail Hour and a Half. I am thrilled to have Sean Cullen with us tonight. Sean, how are you tonight? I'm really good. How are you doing, Scott? Excellent. I am delighted to have you. It's always good to have people who, you know, are in groups like Corky and the Juice Pigs and other, you know, other things that are just fun to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I have been in lots of dumb things. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you you are finally now, because of what's been going on the last 20 months, you are finally being released back into the public to, to, to perform again. This is, I'm thinking for a performer, these last little, these last months must have been driving you nuts. Well, it's just hard because that's my livelihood, you know, my work. And, you know, I've done some stuff online. That's where this show has come out of, the cocktail hour and a half. Uh, I was doing an online show every month and, you know, what we do is get up on a Zoom call and have the whole audiences on Zoom and we just try and do it from our homes. And uh, it was fun. It was very weird uh, and very <laughs> yeah. difficult because, you know, trying to get people. The thing is, you tell everybody, OK, just leave your microphones open, but don't make weird noises. <laughs> all right. Like, just laugh. Don't like start drilling or putting up, you know, storm windows or, you know, beating something or, you know, it's just weird, but people would always do it, you know? So, but that was fun. It was all part of the fun. So now we're going to do it uh, in front of people. We'll have, still have a zoom element. And uh, I'm just happy to be out and have a live audience and be able to perform because there's nothing that can replace that rapport you have with the live audience and the energy you get from it. So, yeah, I, I would think, I mean, obviously I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, trauma surgeons and, and emergency room doctors haven't had a harder time over the last number of months, but I got to tell you, I think comedians truly, uh, those who do this for a living, it has, it must've been really difficult to try and do comedy when you don't have that same feedback because so much of what you do, I w I'm not a comedian clearly, uh, but so much of what you do obviously must come from the energy of the crowd and recognizing when you've caught traction with something and when something is really working. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, Stand-up comedy uh, is like a uh, conversation between one person and a, and a group. And uh, you need that energy from the crowd to make to guide you into what is fun and what's, what's going to be enjoyable, you know, and... So I'm really glad to have these people back in the audiences. And I think it's good for people to get out and, and be around other people yeah. again if you're not too frightened. And, you know, doctors and stuff, they had a hard time, and I, I, but they also got paid for it, which uh, <laughs> is you know, good for them. They found they were yeah. in a good spot, but I'm sure they didn't work, get paid enough for all the great work they did. So, But still, you know, me, I was sitting at home just, uh, you know, farming potatoes and by kitchen on the dirt on the floor the soil it wasn't great i was hunting for my own food in the park uh always safe uh keeping a safe safe distance from others but i oh, of course you know yeah you know but there's only, only so much squirrel meat you can smoke and uh get up ready <laughs> keep you keep you I'm... going during the summer months 
what does Sean Cullen do though when he doesn't have that outlet? I, you know, I, I imagine there are many things going on in that brain that need to be released now and then. And when you don't have that, what do you do? Well, I've been trying. You know, the funny thing is, I went back to university. I never graduated, so I started to take courses from uh, university, try and get my degree. I've also tried to learn to play the guitar, so I'll play the guitar a little bit on the show. Uh, um, you know, I've been taking up uh, auto tattoo, which is uh, not great because here's the thing: when you're tattooing yourself, <laughs> first of all, you're doing, you're looking down doing it. You'll do it upside down, so you're, you'll it'll look right to you looking down, but it won't be right for them. And then the other way, if you do it in the mirror, then it's backwards. So I don't know; it's not great. So just trying to <laughs> improve myself. I don't know. I, I'm, I avoided getting in shape, however. I managed to avoid Well, that, that's good. Which, uh, oh, that's good. Very satisfying. That's good. Very satisfying. That, that keeps you sort of in touch with the audience, because I think every, they may not have been able to sell as many seats for this because they had to spread them out more because we've all put on 30 pounds. So you may have lost yeah. money just with the number of people they can jam into your shows. Well, that's all right. You know, I, as long as they... Yeah, we should pay by the pound you know, uh, pay by weight to yeah. get into the venue. I think that would be far more efficacious. You know, right. that's why I would never work in children's theater because they're too small to make a good living. <laughs> yeah, and all the people who love comedy, they're all jolly. And, you know, anyway, I'll, I, I'll yeah, leave all the uh, these size jokes away. Um, let me ask you a, a comic question, though, a comedy question about where we are right now. Is COVID fair game for funny or is it just well, not allowed to be in the discussion? No, I think it, everybody's been through this uh, common experience, and I think uh, it's kind of our job to point out the absurdity of it and, you know, find the funny in it, because we had to live through it, and it wasn't fun, but there were strange things that, you know, like, for example, when people at the beginning started, you know, buying, like, all the toilet paper they could find, and <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they're doing with it, like... It's just it doesn't make any sense. How much can you wipe yourself? I mean, how much are you planning on it? I, I don't know. And, uh, you know, eggs and flour. You're going to build a big papier-mâché house or something? I don't know. But it's, uh, it's uh, you know, we have all these things that we had to go through. And, you know, I, I think it's important to get it out there and to vent a bit. And uh, that's what comedians are here for, to make comments on on our uh, shared experience. How much of what you do in your show that you're doing right now, the, uh, the Sean Collin comedy hour and a half, how much of it is predetermined and how much is improvisation? Cause that's one of the things that you've done very well for a long time is improvise, but is, is, is all of this just getting up there and seeing where it goes or is all of this pre-planned or is it a mix? Well, it's going to be a mix, you know, because what I'm going to do is I have two great comedy guests, Ali Pierce uh, and Chris also amazing and they're going to do a set each uh, and then where I'm going to talk to them we're going to have everybody stick around and stay on stage and you know chat and make it into a bit of a different experience then I'll have Richard Krause who's going to talk about movies and what the movie experience was like during the uh, lockdown and all of that sort of thing and then uh, we have music from Joan Smith, who's a great musician from Toronto. So I'm just, I want it to be kind of a very casual, fun thing. So I want people to feel comfortable to do whatever they like. But I mean, I, I it, it will be a structured show. It won't be a complete free-for-all with, you know, a splatter zone and all that. It's 
going to be, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, some me regular comedy, and hopefully we'll fool around a bit too. Have you always been comfortable with improvising? Because to me, there is nothing that would be more terrifying because you're up there operating without a net. And if it doesn't work, there is no hiding from that fact. Is this something that you always have been good with or has it been a process to get there? I always liked it because you don't have to prepare anything. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, I don't completely do all improvisation. You know, I think you have to have some structure and to have stuff to fall back on if, they, if you're kind of running dry. But I love improvisation because whatever comes out of your mouth, you have to justify it some way and make it into something. So that that's a really fun thing for me to do. So I, I'm, I'm never unhappy when that's the situation. Uh, when I was introducing you at the top, I listed a couple of your credits, but I, I, I must say, I don't know, as I look through your list of things you've done, uh, anyone who has come up with better titles for the work they've done. Um, Bang, Bang, Baby, The Day My Butt Went Psycho, Oh No, It's an Alien Invasion, Mulrooney, The Opera, the uh, yeah. the interior monologue of Gil the Goldfish, Winston Steinberger, and Sir Dudley Ding Dong. Uh, clearly, you're choosing your work based on the titles because it's, it's genius. I don't know if that's the case or if <laughs> the kind of uh, fools who write this kind of stuff automatically think of me because I'm an idiot. I don't know if that's the case, but, you know, I, I end up having some colorful, fun things, you know. So that's that's exciting. Uh, I, I I know they're all very weird, but uh, you know you you get what you give. So that's the way I look at it. What makes you laugh? What what do you what what knock what cracks you up when you're when someone is doing something? Well, when I'm surprised, you know, uh, it's hard watching comedy because as a comic, you see how things are constructed. It's like being a magician. You know how the magic is being done. So it's not as fun. For you, like you, you see the the, the strings, uh, but I really like to be surprised, and I just like to see things I've not seen before. I really loved. Uh, there's a show on now called "I Think You Should Leave" with Tim Robinson. It's on Netflix, and that really there's some unbelievably funny stuff of that that is just so challenging and weird and and incredible. And there's another show called The Detroiters that also has it in it that I really really love. And both of them are just stuff that you're just like, you think you know what the sketch is going to be about. And then it's not about that at all. And it's insane. So I, I, I that kind of stuff, being surprised is what I really look for. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Sean, did you say, you, I know you said you didn't get in shape over COVID quarantine or quarant- COVID time, but I heard somewhere, are, are you a guy who still plays hockey three or four times a week? Yeah, I played uh, this week. I got to play five times, which I was like, yes, that's good. So, but when I first started playing after COVID, I was literally uh, going to vomit every time I played. I mean, I was so out of shape. And it's a different kind of being in shape. It's weird. I was walking a lot uh, during, the, during the time. You know, I tried to walk kilometers a day. And that's fine, but it's nothing like skating. So I, I ended up mm. starting to skate and it was just murder. But now I I'm, I'm, seem to be okay. Uh, if I lost about 70 pounds, I think I'd be probably in a better shape. But, you know, <laughs> well, why do that? Why do that? But I also heard that, I don't know if it's still now or at one time that you were playing on a team that was made up almost entirely of comedians. Is that true? That is true. It's called the Jokers. We do charity stuff and we play in a league with other old men. 
uh, who are all mainly, it's a league mainly of musicians and people in the television industry and film industry and that sort of thing. Uh, and we've been playing in this league for about the last eight years, 10 years. And uh, it's really fun. And all of our guys are, are in somehow actors or comedians and they're really, really fun. But we've done some great charity stuff over the years. We had, uh, Doug Gilmore and Rick Vive played on our team against the, uh, London Knights old timers with Dale Hunter a few years ago. And that was hilarious. And because they're so good and we're so not good. But, uh, you know, we have, we've had a lot of fun with that. So as long as we can still move, we're going to keep doing it. See, I'm amazed that you haven't created a show yet just by putting a microphone on the bench. Because one thing every hockey player is known for is chirping and a a team of comedians. I I have to believe there is some gold coming off the bench at other players who are going by at stuff they're doing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's mainly against our own players, uh, which isn't uh, effective, you know, as far as winning (laughs) strategy. Mainly we're mocking ourselves. So that's, that's the kind of league it is, you know. So, yeah, it would be fun, but you know what? Nobody wants to see a show about hockey, ever. So we're not going to do it. But, uh, it, it, you know, we have such a good time, and I really love the guys we're with. And we don't win all the time, but it's just a good – I really enjoy being in the room and making each other laugh, and that's a good thing. Listen, it doesn't matter what kind of show about hockey you did. It would have to be better than, well, Youngblood or many of the other hockey movies that were ever made. I mean, the, the bar is not very high to start from to Eclipse. Slapshot is up there, maybe Miracle, but other than that, you guys could come up with something better than almost everything else ever done. Yeah, you should. have you seen Goon? Yes, yes. That's a very good movie. I, I quite enjoyed that. So, yeah, uh, I, I want to uh, say that, uh, that we'll, we'll get to work on that right away, but we're not going to. <laughs> But we're not going to. But what you are going to get to working on Wednesday, Burlington Performing Arts Center, the Sean Cullen Cocktail Hour and a Half. Uh, if people are interested, I, as you said, there are tickets, and there's also, as you say, a remote they can watch by Zoom or purchase a ticket for Zoom. Correct? That's correct. Just go to the BPAC uh, website, the Burlington Performing Arts Center website, and uh, there's a couple of tabs there you can click, and you can go to whichever ticket you like, and. Uh, it's going to be fun and to be there live, but you can also be there by Zoom if you can't be in person. So it'll all be just, good. Just don't be hanging any pictures or cutting any wood while uh, while you're on Zoom, uh, as per the Please instructions. Don't. You know, here's here's what I suggest. Why don't you carry a number of very delicate vases uh, across your living room during the show <laughs> and see if you fall and smash them all? That would be ideal. So that would know, be whatever yep. noisy thing you can find. Please feel free to, to do it. Sean Cullen, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you for having me, Scott. And you have a great, great second hour. Oh, it, we will. Absolutely. We are, it, it, we've been kicked off with a great first half hour, so really appreciate it. Sean Cullen, again, Burlington Performing Arts Center, Wednesday, the Sean Cullen Cocktail Hour and a Half, um, which uh, as, is described, let me find the, uh, the listing here, as uh, sophisticated silliness. So uh, you can take from that uh, a pretty good hint of what it is. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.